Our Old Testament reading comes from Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 through 30. No, 31. And this is uh, just after this uh, conversation that Moses has with God at the burning bush. And so it is time for Moses to go back to Egypt. There's some confusing stuff in this particular passage. We can talk about that later. Um, But before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us. Lord, we, we pray this morning that you would help us to hear your word. Lord, help us to be those who have, who have ears to hear. Lord, give us minds to think, to understand. Lord, give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives today. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Turning to our gospel reading this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. For the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not, is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, if you are paying attention through those readings, you'll note that um, there's some kind of confusing stuff in both of those passages, the one from Exodus and the one from Mark. So let's move on to something easier. We're headed to Revelation. We are uh, actually in a series going through the book of Revelation, and um, and we're working our way through it somewhat slowly because, yeah, Revelation is uh, n- like one of the things people know about it is it has some things in there that are confusing or can be. Um, we're working our way through it slowly, and one of the things that we've been saying week after week after week is that the book of Revelation comes at the end of the Bible for a reason, and that is because it has 65 prerequisites. That there's, uh, if you're not familiar with the entire rest of the Bible, you will make a mess of the book of Revelation. And I hope that we're starting to, uh, <laughs> to really understand that that is the case as we go through this bit by bit, and we keep seeing how every part of Revelation so far just keeps drawing so heavily on everything else through the rest of the Bible. And we will see that again uh, today as well. Where we are in the book of Revelation is in chapter 2, and John has received this vision. He is on an island of Patmos. He's in exile because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so that's where he is. He has this vision, and now he has been uh, commanded to write messages to seven churches uh, in and around that area. And we've looked, we haven't looked, I keep telling him I'm going to bring you a map and I haven't brought it yet, but in our minds, we've looked at, a, uh, at how these churches are kind of lined up in a curved shape. And so it would have been the natural route to go from one church to the next to take this message. Um, and we have also seen how with each of these messages, they have a lot of things in common. And one of the things they all have in common is that they, somewhere towards the end of each message says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. In other words, each message is a message to that church, but it's also a message to all churches. And in fact, that's probably one of the reasons why we have seven churches, messages to seven of them as a way of representing all uh, churches. Seven being the number of completeness, which we see a bunch in Revelation. So where we are right now, we're, uh, we have looked at a few of these messages, and uh, now we are looking at the message to the church in Thyatira. And uh, we're just going to dive in. This is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And uh, I want to just read the whole thing first, 
so that you can hear what it says and you can already start trying to uh, make some sense of it and also start noticing where there may be some areas that you're like, I don't know what that is about. And then we'll come back and go through it uh, more carefully. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does, not, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations." That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Clear? Some of it? Maybe? All right. Well, we've talked about some of the things that each of these messages have in common, and one of the things they have in common is they always begin with a, a description of Jesus. And so this time we have this, uh, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the description we get of Jesus. But these descriptions actually come from the vision that John had in chapter 1, which should also indicate that each of these messages is not the only thing that this church receives. They're receiving the whole book of Revelation. That, the whole thing is a letter. And that this part is the part that is specifically addressed to them, but the whole thing is for them. And, and so they would recognize these uh, descriptions of Jesus from the vision in chapter 1. If you are not familiar, go back to Revelation chapter 1 and uh, yeah, read that again. And... Uh, so that's one of the things that it has that each letter has in common before it gets to then saying the things that Jesus knows about his churches. Uh, he does know his church. He knows uh, what his people are going through. And he talks about the good and the bad, the things that they are doing right that they need to keep on doing, and the things that they're not getting right that they need to repent and change direction on. And these, uh, most churches have things that they're doing right, though not all. Most churches have things they need to change, but not all. And then there's, uh, towards the end, you know, to the one who is victorious, here's what I'll give you. He tells each of them something like that that has to do with things, with the coming kingdom. And then we have uh, that, you know, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're all supposed to listen up. Now, why would every letter start with a description of Jesus? 
instead of starting with the problems that the church has. Does anybody find that odd? Why wouldn't you start right with where they are? This is, hey, look, I know what, where you are. I know what you're going through. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, years ago said something. I don't have the exact quote, but he said something like, you know, when you think of the whole Bible, we tend to come to it, and we've got all of our problems and all of our questions and all of our everything, and we come to the Bible, and we open up to the first page, and it says, in the beginning, God, as though it's forgotten all about you. <laughs> it's like, but it hasn't. It's, and his point is, if we don't understand who God is first, if we don't understand that God comes first, we don't even see our own problems and issues and everything else that's going on in our lives in the right perspective. We have to start with God or we get everything else wrong. And I think this is the same reason why each of these letters to the churches comes with a description of Jesus. This is who he is. He is the one who has, he is the one who's the son of God. He is the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. He is the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Let's talk about the blazing fire one first. This image of having eyes like blazing fire is like x-ray vision. This is the, if you ever talk to somebody and while you're talking to them, you get the feeling that they're not looking at you. They're looking through you. Like they can see to the deepest part of your soul. You feel like that ever? You ever talk to somebody like that? Now that can be a wonderful thing, right? Where you feel like somebody actually knows you. (laughs) They know you deep, but it can also be a really uncomfortable thing. You start kind of squirming and maybe I don't want to make eye contact anymore. You ever feel like that? This is what, how Jesus is being described as the one who knows you better than you know yourself, who sees not just how you present yourself to everybody on the outside, but who sees your actions. Yeah. Your words. Sure. But also your hidden thoughts and motivations, maybe even motivations you've hidden from yourself. He sees it all. He is the one whose eyes are like blazing fire described later. Then I, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. This is what these blazing eyes are about. And so he begins then talking about this church by saying, Hey, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than did at first. So how are they doing so far? Good, right? That's good stuff. This is not, when we were looking at the church uh, in Ephesus, it talked about how they had fallen away from the love they had at first. This church actually is still holding on to the love they had at first. And in fact, they're doing more than they did at first. So when they first became Christians and they were first um, learning what it means to love God and to love others, And they're putting that into actual tangible practice. There was a way that they were going about that. And he says, and you've not only continued that, you've increased that. You're doing more now than you were back then. That is good stuff. The church in Ephesus wishes they could have heard a message like that from the one who knows them best of all. But that's not all he says. Then he goes on and he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
this, um, you know, who is this woman, this Jezebel? I suspect, we don't know historically uh, that there was a particular person that was problematic in this church other than what we have right here. But the way I understand this is that there is a person who was a particular person who was teaching in this church who um, might as well have been the Jezebel from the Old Testament who leads Israel astray. She marries King Ahab, and she is a Baal worshiper. And so Ahab is kind of like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to worship God. And she's like, well, we're going to worship Baal, though, right? And he's like, yeah, we'll do that too. And, and so they start building um, things to other gods. And she leads the people astray as she combines uh, their worship of God the one true God, with the false idols of her culture and of the day. This uh, is problematic. It was hugely problematic for the people of Israel back in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. And what Jesus is pointing out here to the church in Thyatira is, though they may not recognize it, they are living through the same kind of thing. There are people that they are listening to. There is a particular person they are listening to who is leading them astray, away from the way of God. And the way she's doing it is the same way that Jezebel did. Leading into sexual immorality, leading into food sacrificed to idols. In the ancient uh, Israelite uh, culture, this food sacrificed to idols would have been uh, you know, to, to Baal, etc. But in Rome, food sacrifice to idols, now you're talking about sacrificing to Zeus and uh, the gods of you know, the gods of, of Rome. And in fact, in this culture, that wasn't just something that you would like go out of your way to do. And so it's like, oh, that'll be easy to just not do that. It was the kind of thing that if you had business dealings in Thyatira, you probably had to be a part of one of the local guilds. And then if you're going to be part of the local guilds, they had these meetings together where this is one of the things you would do. This is part of it is you would have these sacrifices to idols. And now we're going to feast and it's all going to be in the name of whichever God we're going to be worshiping today. And so now as a Christian, what do you do? You can, uh, you can take some of Paul's teachings and twist them around in order to suit what you want to do anyway. And this may be what Jezebel was teaching. These feasts would also uh, tend to involve lots of not just feasting, but drinking, and then the sexual immorality um, as the feast goes on. And the inhibitions go down. Somehow this person is teaching this is okay. It's fine. Just go do that. But just know that you're still really a Christian anyway. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Who would think so. 
This is, uh, there's an awful lot of sexual morality kind of language here, but it's also throughout the whole Bible with this language of adultery because God presents himself to his people as a marriage relationship. The church is the bride of Christ, right? When God gathers his people at Mount Sinai, that whole time at Mount Sinai, after they've come out of slavery in Egypt, the whole thing is like a wedding ceremony. I will be your God. You will be my people. There's, uh, there's so much in that regard that then later on, the prophets continue to talk about the Israelites not worshiping and being true to God but running after other idols as though it's somebody who is married who's running around on their spouse. Same kind of thing. It's this adultery language, and that's what we have here. And so then, um, so it talks about those who commit adultery with her. But it says, uh, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. Jesus is so patient. I've given her time. But time does run out. And he says, I've given her time, but she's unwilling. And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. What a poetic turn of phrase. Where you take someone who is trying to uh, lure people into adultery. And so you think of, you know, back in Proverbs where you have a woman who is trying to seduce somebody. Oh, my husband's away on a long trip. And why don't you come in? The bed is nice, isn't it? It's like, stay away. And here, it's that same kind of thing, but the bed that has been this uh, promise of pleasure becomes actually the bed of suffering. It is what is leading to death. And it says, then I will, uh, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now this here is just, not talking about salvation is by works or anything like that, but it is saying that your deeds, what you do, does actually show what you really believe. And so you can say with your mouth, I believe this is important, but if you do something else, maybe you show that what you really believe is not what you say you believe. That's what we do that shows what we really believe. And so he says, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So we can say, oh, I put God first in everything, except when I'm at work and we have to go sacrifice to idols and, you know, then I'll just do that. But I still put God first. No, really, I do. Well, no, you don't. (laughs) Now, the good news is not everybody in Thyatira is doing this. Now, to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And we come to Satan's so-called deep secrets. Anybody curious? You want to know what those are? That is correct. You do not want to know what those are. (laughs) That's the point, is what she was doing is, whatever it was she was saying, is going beyond what God has said. God has said, here is who you are. Here is who I am. Here is what you are to do to live faithfully as my people. And then you have somebody else who comes along and goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you want to know the real deal, follow me. I can tell you the real stuff behind all of it. And you go, well, now hold on a second. 
And so these are going to be the deep things of God. But as Jesus says, "Mm -mm, those are the deep things of Satan. That's who's really behind that. You do not uh, go following after those kinds of things. Instead, what we are to do is to hold on to what you have until I come, he says. What is it that we have that we are to hold on to? What is it that we have that we are to hold on to? We are to hold on to Jesus. We are to hold on to the love of God. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. These are what we are to hold on to. Not departing. If you imagine that you are uh, in, um, in an ocean current and you've been ripped out to sea and you've caught onto a rock. This actually happened to my brother and a friend of his when they were in high school and they got dragged out to sea and they grab onto this rock and a lifeguard comes running and gets to them and actually brings them both back. It was an amazing deal and there's a funny part to that story that you'll have to ask me about later. The point here though is that if you're dragged out to sea and you're holding on to this rock, you don't go, well, I'll just let go for a little bit and then I'll grab on again right? You hold on and you're holding on waiting for that lifeguard to come and rescue you. And this is what his message is. Hold on to what you have. I have given you what you need to make it through all the cultural stuff that you're going to face. And it's all going to be coming and going. It's going to try to take you away. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We've seen um, throughout the book of Revelation, there's the two um, kind of equal opposite ways that this happens. We see the same kind of thing in the parable Jesus tells of the four soils, that there's the uh, being kind of persecuted until things get so hard to follow Jesus. You're like, well, maybe... Maybe I will just let go. This seems awfully hard to continue hanging on. But then there's also the temptation. The temptation of uh, there's something really nice, really good. Maybe I can just go follow that instead of holding on and waiting for Jesus. But he says, the message is, hold on to what you have until I come. And then he says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Cool. What? This is a passage. This is what's going to take us back to that description, the second or the third, depending on how you look at it, description of Jesus at the beginning of being the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is a uh, reference here. Let me just read to you. Psalm chapter 2. You're not going to get the burnished bronze here, but you'll get the iron scepter and the pieces of pottery. Um, This is the second psalm. It's kind of first two Psalms sort of set up the whole book of Psalms. And this second one really is about this contrast between uh, all the nations of the world where you get nation after nation that tries to set itself up as though it is the most important thing in all the world. 
and it's not. And so we have this psalm. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, for he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a psalm that quickly became recognized as messianic, as one that's pointing to the future Messiah, the one who would be the king of the kingdom of God. We see it pointing to Jesus clearly, but here's the the crazy part about this one, about this reference in Revelation. Is it doesn't say, I'm going to be the one who does these things. It says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them in pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father. You get it? That all these other nations claim to be the, the thing. We don't need God. We can get rid of God. We'll do our own thing. We'll be the greatest. It's another Tower of Babel all over again. And just like the Tower of Babel, God says that will come to an end. I have established my king. But what Jesus is saying here is not only is he that king, but he's the kind of king who shares his authority. He will share his authority with his people. We see this kind of language in Jesus talking to his disciples. We see the same kind of language throughout uh, the rest of the book of Revelation, which we will get to later. So what about these burnished bronze feet? That just means he's got a great tan. Is that what that means? It's not about that. This takes us back to the book of Daniel. The vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, the king uh, of Babylon, who has this dream of this giant statue that has, you know, head of gold, and it's got all these different, like, body parts made out of different things, a statue, down to its feet, which are made as a mixture of iron and clay. Is that a pretty good base to stand on? Got a big, tall statue, you want to have a base of iron and clay mixed together? No. Iron? Some good qualities. Clay's got some good qualities, but when you mix them together, you kind of lose all the good qualities. And what you end up with is something that's brittle. And so you have this impressive structure on a fragile, brittle base. And the interpretation is basically this is what it's this is what the kingdoms of this earth are like. And we look to the kingdoms of this earth and we go, wow, how impressive. And what the Bible tells us is they will all fall, but not the kingdom of God. And so we see Jesus 
as one whose feet are like burnished bronze. And so when you take uh, bronze, this is, comes from, like we have <laughs> discussed this with Jonathan earlier, we talk about how today we think of bronze as like, oh, gold, silver, and bronze. Like those are the, the medals you earn in the Olympics. Now, back then you wouldn't have <laughs> earned those medals. Um, and laurel wreath, yeah, sure, but not these. So for, so for these uh, purposes of this, it's not like a third place medal. This is like the best you can get. Like the Bronze Age became the Bronze Age for a reason. And it's because you take uh, iron and you mix it with copper. And iron is very strong, but it rusts. Copper is uh, doesn't rust, but it's pretty soft. But you mix the two together and you get something that's very strong and doesn't rust. And you get better than that. And so that's the idea here is you've got this bronze base, one that is very strong and lasts forever. That's a pretty big contrast, isn't it? Between the kingdoms of this world. And so, um, so you have Jesus being described this way and saying, and I'm not only the king over the eternal kingdom, but the one who will share my authority with those who just hold on. And then he gives one more encouragement to just hold on, and that's this. I will also give that one the morning star. That's interesting. That'll show up later as well, but but for now, just think about it like this. When the night is really dark, it can be easy to start to think the sun might not ever show up again. This may be the night that just goes on forever. However, says to those who continue to hold on, who continue to hold on to what he has, what he has given to us, to what we have until he comes. He gives us the morning star. He gives us that sign in the midst of the darkness. that The darkness is not the end of the story, that it will not win. That the day is dawning and the day in its fullness will come. So, where does that leave us? A couple things. One, if you find that you have been adding something to the gospel itself and saying, yes, Jesus, but Jesus and something else. This typically happens by... um, using Jesus as a means to an end. And when we discover that that's the case, what we discover is that the end that we're actually going for, that is the idol that has taken the place of Jesus. Here's what I mean. If we have um, marriages, families, jobs, our country, and we say, we want Jesus to be a part of all of that, because we believe that life with him is better than life without him in every area of life. Good. But if we start to shift that into saying, I will follow Jesus in order to have a good marriage. I will follow Jesus in order to have a good job or in order to have a good family or in order to have a good country. Then Jesus just becomes the means to something else that we actually want more than Jesus himself. 
And then what happens? If what you're going, if what you're using Jesus for goes away. If you lose your family, if you lose your marriage, if you lose your job, if you lose your country, what happens with your relationship with Jesus? The point is, Jesus needs to be first. Jesus is the one that is uh, preeminent over all else. All else. And so if we find that we have been mixing our faith in Jesus with the idols of our own day or with our own culture, this may be the time that he's given us to repent of our immorality. And if you find that you are holding on to what you have, even in the midst of situations in your life or just in our day and age that make that difficult, remember who Jesus is. Do not lose sight of him. Peter walked on the water while keeping his eyes on Jesus, who had commanded him to do so. But when he looked away, when he got freaked out, my word's not his, (laughs) because of the wind and the waves, he starts sinking. Hold on. Keep our eyes on Jesus, on who he is and what he has promised. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.